I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start a Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. When I draft out each week's podcast, I always start with a question at the top of the page. My goal then with the rest of the episode is to do my best to answer that question. There's a pretty common theme these days. The tougher the question, the bigger and hairier and more intimidating and more insecure I am about tackling it, the better the episode. I met an entrepreneur once who told me that hard startups were easier to start than easy startups. He said he'd rather try to build a startup that made vertically farmed wheat to take on the third biggest crop in the U.S. than to build the direct-to-consumer millennial version of whatever everyday item hadn't been millennialized yet. Because for a startup to work, people need to be excited about it. They need to want to help you. They need to want to take a chance on you. And no one gets all that excited about iterative stuff, just the big swings. And both are going to be just as hard anyway, so you might as well do something that matters. I guess hard podcasts are easier than easy podcasts, and the question at the top of today's page is a tough one. What makes a great product? Maybe not coincidentally, every great business I've seen starts with a great question too. One the customer really wants the entrepreneur to figure out because no one else has been able to do it. There's a saying that I really like, write something worth reading or do something worth writing about, and I think this is kind of along those lines. I usually think of those questions starting in this form, quote, what would happen if? Here's an example. Maybe you think there's room for a mobile pet grooming service with flexible hours in New York City. And if you are thinking this, I wholeheartedly agree. Your question might be, what would happen if it were wildly easy for people in New York City to book grooming appointments for their dogs on short notice? Maybe even same day until 10 p.m. at night or even later. You can see how that question would quickly evolve because the question is more or less interesting for different people. For me, a married guy where both my wife and I work 70 plus hour weeks, answering that question would be a lifesaver. It's brutal finding time to get young rubes cut. And since she doesn't shed, she ends up hot and smelly in the summers. We've been calling her stinky for two weeks now. We usually book an appointment eight weeks out, do everything we can to hold that date, but maybe 50% of the time something comes up last minute and we have to wait another couple weeks until the groomer can sneak us in and poor Rubes ends up looking like a Wookiee. But for my downstairs neighbor, who seems to just sit in the backyard all day and enjoy New York City's new marijuana laws with their Pekingese, it probably wouldn't be all that life-changing to have the option to get the dog groomed at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. That wide open 2.30 p.m. slot on a Monday is just fine. As you dig in more, the core question is going to evolve. You start to see how the answer would be different for people with dogs that needed to be cut more frequently or were bigger or owners that had limited time or traveled a lot or any number of other dog or owner characteristics. You figure out who cares about the question disproportionately and start to gear it towards them. So maybe the question eventually becomes, what would happen if it were wildly easy for people on the Upper West Side who work long hours and have big dogs that don't shed to book grooming appointments in the evenings? Great questions create testable hypotheses. If I take that question and flip it around, I end up with copy I could put on a landing page or an Instagram ad or on flyers at the dog park with a QR code. Something like, quote, we groom hypoallergenic dogs on the Upper West Side in the evenings. 
We come to you and we save a few slots each night for same day grooming. We could probably even cut your dog tonight. Book here. Then we see if people really wanted that question answered. The great part about hard questions being at the heart of your startup is that they transform even the worst writers into people who can push out pretty effective ad and website copy because you just flip around the question and describe the people you'd be solving the problem for. Hey, you have this problem. Here's how you feel about it. We can help becomes messaging that converts the right people at a high rate. Great specific questions lead to customers feeling heard, which builds trust. This is a long way of saying that everything you do should be anchored by a question you and the people you're building for really want answered. In startups and at your day job and really anywhere, it just makes life more fun. And also gives you some boundaries and direction, which humans thrive under. Too many people spend their precious time answering questions that no one really cares about. If you're working on a startup, what question are you answering? And if you are starting that grooming service, what are you going to call it? Vanity Fur? Groomingdales? Snip Doggy Dog? Anyway, the big hairy question for today's podcast started out as what makes a great product. But as I dug in, it evolved. Because just knowing about what makes a great product is only half the equation for you. A better question is, how can knowing what makes a great product help you, a person in the early stages of a startup, build an initial product when you have limited time and resources, and maybe haven't even committed to doing this thing full time? How can you try before you buy and still build a great product? Now we're getting somewhere. To answer that set of questions, we'll have to start with what a great product looks like. And to do that, we'll have to talk about my second favorite product of all time after a little smooth jazz. Hi there. If you want to advertise here, we're going to start accepting some ad placements. Get in front of thousands of entrepreneurs each week. Only stuff relevant to early stage entrepreneurs. Everyone is already familiar with Magic Spoon by now. Email me if interested, team at gettacklebox.com. My second favorite product of all time, and don't worry, I'll tell you about my favorite product before the pot is done, is McDonald's. And here's why. At a dinner party a few months back, I met someone new. I'd missed that whole meet someone new thing, by the way. He was telling me about how he and his wife had taken a year and traveled around the world after a business he'd helped grow had sold. I asked him what his favorite moment of the trip was, and he didn't hesitate. Quote, well, we decided that since we'd probably only do this once, we wanted to go to places really far off the beaten path, places it took a week or two to even get to. So we've been traveling all over Southern Asia for maybe eight, 10 weeks, and we'd been having a blast, but it was hard. Almost nothing we ate agreed with either of us, and we'd actually lost a ton of weight. It was our last day before flying east, so we were taking a bus to the city that had the airport. I don't even remember exactly what city it was, but I do remember we were mentally and physically exhausted. And that's when we saw it, the golden arches, glowing, a beacon. There was a McDonald's. We leapt off the bus and sprinted to it and ordered a Big Mac and fries. We must have looked like the lamest American stereotype, but it was the most incredible thing I'd ever eaten. It tasted exactly like I hoped it would. It tasted like home. I'll tell you all about a bunch of other amazing highlights, he continued, but as far as moments, that's embarrassingly the one that stands out. The product McDonald's makes isn't burgers and fries and shakes and underrated apple pies and the McRib way too infrequently. The product they make is consistency, and they make that product better than any other company in the world. 
McDonald's tastes the same in Seattle as it does in Hong Kong, and that's something. The internal system they've built allows ordinary people to get extraordinary results fast. You've probably been to expensive restaurants and ordered the same dish twice and been disappointed the second time. McDonald's never does that, and they charge you one-fifth the price and have 38,000 locations in 100 countries. Products are a combination of the product itself and the emotions that product produces, if any. Most products don't produce any emotions, which is why most products are interchangeable. The opposite of love is indifference. Your hometown pizza place is your favorite pizza place in the world because the taste triggers memories, and McDonald's is McDonald's because each time you have it, it's consistent. A brand is a promise a company keeps over and over, and no one is better at keeping promises than McDonald's. The takeaway here is that great companies know exactly what their customers want from them and organize their product to reflect that. Each feature supports that core promise. I'm sure it was tempting for McDonald's ownership to sell frozen fries at Costco, but they knew it'd dilute that consistency. I'm sure they even thought about opening up a pizza chain or an ice cream shop or going upscale or cheaper, but the product delivers on a promise they didn't want to compromise. The hardest part about a product is really the product itself. It's clarity into what people actually want from you and the discipline to execute on that without diluting that core promise. Okay, Brian, decent story about dog groomers and McDonald's, and now I want a McRib, but how does this help me build the first version of a product? Glad you asked. To talk about that, I'll need to tell you about my favorite product of all time, the minivan. Why do I love the minivan? Because it is the most badass, ballsy, rarest of all products. The product that is absolutely, unapologetically for someone, and very clearly, very aggressively not for anyone else. Products like this exist to solve a problem. You can isolate great problems into a specific moment. Minivans exist for the moment your third kid is born. There's absolutely no reason to have a minivan if you don't have three or more kids, and everyone who has three or more kids should have a minivan. Just ask a parent with three kids about their minivan. One of my best friends has three boys, and when he talks about his Honda Odyssey, you'd think he was talking about his actual firstborn. Sure, there's the obvious stuff he talks about, like there not being a center console so you can easily get back to the kids from the front seat, and the magic seats that slide and rearrange to get snowboards or bikes or whatever else in there. But just watch his eyes light up as he talks about the intercom and camera system that allow him to see both rows and talk through the kids' headphones when they're connected to the car's Wi-Fi, which is always or the fact that he can have music up front and they can have music in the back and neither one needs to hear each other. No one loves anything more than my friend loves his Odyssey and here's why in his words from a text message he sent me this morning. Quote, It's really hard having three boys and the car had to be made by someone with three boys. There's no way anyone else could know to do all the things that they do. They make my life 100 times easier. They could double the price and I'd still buy it, but it's actually still pretty reasonable. God, I love that car. When companies solve hard problems for you, you get attached to them. McDonald's sells consistency. Minivans sell support. Badly needed, thoughtful support. If you're wondering, I'd imagine the question that started the minivan was, what would it look like if we built a car that made driving with three or more kids enjoyable? That probably was quickly debunked as enjoyable might never happen, but maybe it was what would it look like to build a car that prepared parents for 99% of scenarios that pop up when you are traveling with three kids. When you ask questions like that, it's impossible to not investigate every moment of driving with the kids to tailor the product for that. 
Nothing about the Odyssey is cutting edge. It's all off-the-shelf tech. The scarcity surrounding the Odyssey is the discipline from whoever made the original minivan. Can you imagine trying to sell a Pathfinder to someone with three kids who's also considering an Odyssey? You have no chance. So why was the minivan story in the here's how you apply the lesson part of the podcast? Your first product obviously can't be as technically advanced as a car. Because clarity is your path to a product as beloved as McDonald's or a Honda Odyssey. Clarity on who your customer is and what they need from you is the takeaway. And clarity gives you the license to make hyper-specific features, which are the things customers will love, remember, and share. I got pitched a second-hand baby marketplace the other day. We'll keep the parents' theme going. The idea was that lots of parents end up throwing away or stashing forever their baby gear once their kid grows out of it. Sometimes this stuff is destroyed, but oftentimes not. There's some infrastructure around donating, though it's hard to do and in lots of cases not allowed. In the end, lots of parents just end up holding on to stuff in case someone they know needs it someday. The entrepreneurs I was speaking with had built a marketplace. Customers could list used baby products and buy used baby products, and parents could leave comments on things that were useful or not. It was growing slowly. I asked the founder who it was for, and they responded a bit confused, parents. Yes, I said, but which parents? Again, a bit of confusion. Either ones that have baby stuff they want to sell or ones that want to buy baby stuff, I guess. Then they started talking about the size of the baby market and how spending on baby goods had increased 3x in the past 24 months and how the birth rate was actually going up again and on and on and on. I pushed the conversation back to the customer and asked who amongst their early customers was disproportionately excited by this marketplace. Who really needed this thing? Who was hoping they could make it work? Well, parents of twins definitely need it, one founder answered. And that's why we started this in the first place, because I have twins. She continued, it's so absurdly hard to be a parent to twins. Most of your friends don't have twins, so any advice on products they give you is irrelevant. You've got 5x the work because babies do not scale at a one-to-one ratio. You've got to buy double the stuff. Your relationship with your significant other is dramatically strained because there's never a break. Therapists talk about how resentment amongst couples with twins is way more likely. All your friends with one kid are playing one game and you're playing another. You can't relate and neither can they. So why isn't this just for twins, I asked. Because when I spoke with parents without twins, they said they'd love to use this too because we want it to be a venture-backed and scalable business. Twins is only like one-eighth of the baby market, but we have a specific tab for twins. They can always go there. I worked with this person a bit more and learned about a few moments when having twins becomes totally overwhelming. One is about four months in when they grow out of everything people have gifted you. They need new stuff and you've got none of it. There should be a screen just for that moment because that's such a hard time, she said. Once you pick a customer, you can dig in deeper on them and find and highlight those types of moments. That specificity around the problem is how you'll build trust. There were about 10 other products that I considered talking about during this podcast and each was able to create an emotional connection with customers. Every connection was from solving a hard problem. For startups, there's just no way you can solve a hard problem for lots of groups of customers. You'll be lucky to do it for one. So to get back to the question at the top of the page, what makes a great product? The simplest answer I can come up with is focus. Clarity on who your first customer is. Being unflinching in that customer so you can offer them something with a level of specificity that no one else can. 
This might sound hard or constricting, but it'll actually be freeing. You'll have the freedom to build specific features and market with direct language and go places your customer is and talk right to them. You won't have to compromise on any of that. Products are a commodity. Focus is scarce. And if you do start the dog grooming service, please go with Snip Doggy Dog. I can't stop thinking about it. And please call me when you do. Rubes looks like a Sasquatch. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. And if you want to get more detailed on exactly what to build or how to pick the right customer, join us. Review applications to the Tacklebox membership in 72 hours. We could be strategizing on your startup by the weekend. Have a great week.